Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, chaplain, professor, writer, and speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today's episode is on the deadly sin of wrath. Perhaps you felt angry with someone before, so angry that you wished them harm. Maybe you've had trouble distinguishing between righteous anger and the sin of hatred. Well, on today's show, we're going to discuss the seventh of the deadly sins, the sin of wrath. And if this is left unchecked in your life, it can destroy others and you. And so we must subject this subject to Christ and understand our anger properly. So let's discuss this sin and ensure it's dealt with biblically. Aaron, there's some examples in the Bible of anger or hatred towards sin that aren't sinful. So can we start there perhaps to let our listeners know what we are and what we are not talking about? I suspect this is a really important topic for many people. I I read once that over 10% of people admit to losing their temper every single day. And you can imagine that probably another 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70%, maybe even another 90% would admit to losing their temper on occasion. I, I do meet some people that probably don't struggle with temper or hatred or that kind of anger, but I think most people probably have seen it, felt it in their lives. And so it's an important thing to discuss. I also read that younger men under the age of 35, about a quarter of them admit uh, to having difficulty controlling their temper and perhaps a slightly uh, less number of women. There's many triggers for this. We live in a culture right now that's, um, well, it can make you as mad as Hades Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you see the rampant sinfulness being promulgated by the political establishment, by churches that are guilty of false teaching. You see the abuse of the taxation structure where many people are paying through the nose for taxes. Uh, You see people that are subjects of abuse from perhaps a spouse or a parent. And you can understand that there's many triggers in the world that might make us furious to the point we want to end someone's life or wish them harm. And it's easy to justify this sin because we might think, well, God is a God of wrath, so why can't I be a man or woman of wrath? And we forget that God's wrath is always righteous. We talk about righteous indignation when it comes to God. God's righteousness demands that even his wrath is always righteous. Now, it's possible for us to have righteous anger or righteous wrath as well. And we know it's righteous when it has a redemptive goal in mind or a holy motive attached to it. But unrighteous anger or unrighteous wrath is solely destructive. So when we talk about righteous wrath versus unrighteous wrath, righteous wrath or righteous anger, again, is motivated by by a desire for holiness, personal holiness in our own lives. We might be angry with our own sin or anger at those that might tempt us to sin. It's also motivated at times by a desire for justice. We should be angry 
when we think of 100,000 babies being aborted in Canada every single year, and many more in the United States, and many more in various Western nations, this should make us angry. There should be a certain fury, a righteous fury that arises when we hear about these things. In fact, passivity to sin, if you're not shaken by sin and unrighteousness, that can be equally sinful. You might have a diminished view of righteousness that needs to be corrected. You need to turn up the dial a little bit. Or, and most importantly, we can have righteous anger when God's holiness is attacked. When we hear someone blaspheme the name, that should make us angry. And this this is good. And this shows that we're not emotionally dead. We, we can think of Moses when he came down from the mountain. He demonstrated that righteous anger at the idolatry of of God's people and they were worshiping the golden calf. Throughout the prophetic books, many times the prophets of God are angry at the sinfulness, the idolatrous behavior, the debauchery, the prevalence of divorce among God's people. Jesus himself was anger at Pharisaism. He was anger at the abuse, abuse of the temple. So there's righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. Anger is good when it motivates us to protect life or speak up for truth or righteousness or just uphold moral righteousness. But it's bad when it destroys, when it's self-centered, and when there's no redemptive value attached to it. So that's what we are and aren't talking about in this Leadership Now episode. Yeah. So we're talking about the deadly sin of wrath, so maybe it would be helpful to then define what is the sin of wrath. Mm -hmm. Well, first, sometimes definitions are better understood when we have illustrations in mind. So one of the first examples of unrighteous wrath in the Bible, of course, everyone will probably know, is Cain's wrath at his brother Abel. So when Cain was furious that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, instead of learning from that, uh, instead of congratulating Abel and apologizing to God or making things right with God, he plots to kill his brother, and he ultimately is successful. So the first baby born murders his brother, and that's an example of wrath. The Pharisees, of course, in the New Testament, killed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's a pretty glaring illustration of unrighteous anger or wrath in, in the New Testament. When we think of wrath or, or anger, there's some internal characteristics that we can identify. Uh, wrath has as one of its objects uh, vengeance uh, and punishment. The person that struggles with wrath, wrath, it's not that they're wanting behavior necessarily to be corrected. So if you, if you look at an abortionist and you say, I want that behavior to be corrected, I want the murders to stop, and I want babies' lives to be sacrificed. That's one to, uh, to be saved. I should say that's one thing. But if your goal is, I just want that person dead. I want him dead now. I want him dead now. That is a characteristic of um, unrighteous wrath. It 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 doesn't have. One could say it this way: unrighteous wrath is disconnected from from logic. It's it's driven by emotion, by emotional turmoil, by um, a desire for revenge, by a hatred for the personhood of the other. So 
one could argue that uh, an abortionist, uh, certainly an abortionist, any murderer before God is justly deserving of capital execution at the at the hands of the state, not the individual. So we don't we're not individual anti justice, according to our view of sphere sovereignty. Right. But one could say, well, my wrath is justified towards the abortionist because well they're murdering people. Okay. Well, if we're if we're asking the question, does a murderer deserve to have their life taken by the state? The answer to that is yes. We have that encoded in the pre-Mosaic text in Genesis chapter 9. We've mentioned that in other episodes. That whoever takes the life of a man by man, spills the blood of a man by man shall his blood be shed. So there's a, there's a justice issue there that the, the penalty must meet the um, uh, matchup of the crime. But unrighteous wrath, it's not so much concerned about justice. It's not so much concerned about correcting the behavior, proper civil order, the sanctity of life, um, stopping people from blaspheming God. Mm -hmm. It's not so much concerned about holiness and righteousness. It's vengeful. It's like, Mm -hmm. you have offended me. You've hurt me. I hate your guts. I want you dead. I want you punished. I want you imprisoned. I want you... We We saw this a lot during COVID when people that were supposedly all pro-life, you know, we got to protect life, we got to get vaccinated, we got to wear our masks. As soon as they would meet someone that's not wearing a mask for conscientious reasons or not vaccinated, well, I hope you die. Mm-hmm. My wife was chased around a grocery store by a guy that was saying, I, w- I hope you die, I hope your kids die, I hope your parents die, because she wasn't wearing a mask. Think of how ironic that is, because in his mind, she should be wearing a mask to save life, but because she wasn't wearing a mask, he wanted her dead, her family dead, everyone else dead. Mm-hmm. That's wrath. That's not. There's no righteousness connected mm-hmm. to that. Wrath is often directed toward an innocent person. We, perhaps one of the most glaring 20th century illustrations of just heinous, wicked, demonic, unrighteous wrath was what happened in the concentration camps in Europe, mm-hmm. where innocent people, little, little children, teenagers, men and women that weren't even part of military services were raped, beaten, experimented on, starved. They were just hated because of their ethnicity, because they were Jews or gypsies or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And that is unrighteous anger. Anger that's motivated by hatred. The funny thing is, maybe a better word would be the sad thing is, is that there's, it's almost always justified in our minds and hearts. It's like, well, this person deserves it. They did me wrong, so they deserve it. So when we talk about wrath, it's the exact same word. Wrath is unrighteous anger. How do we know that? Because in Proverbs 15.1, it talks about a gentle answer turning away wrath. Anger and wrath in that verse are one and the same. So there's righteous anger or righteous wrath, which God possesses and which the the godly righteous man or woman can possess directed toward evil. And then there's unrighteous anger or unrighteous wrath. And so that's how we would define this, mm-hmm. this deadly sin. And as I mentioned earlier, it's something we all have to be careful about because it, it, can, it can creep up in, in the life of the most meek person uh, on earth if we're not careful. Yeah, and uh, in my experience, there's certain places that uh, 
provoke wrath more than others on the road being one of the triggers, right? It's like, generally I'm not a pretty worked up guy, but I was cut off by a, uh, a speeding motorcyclist on the 401 pulling my camping trailer and he just whipped around me the one okay. time and then three other ones whipped around. And the first thought through my mind was almost like, oh, I hope they get in an accident for that. And it's like, that's wrath. That's sin. That's right there. Like right. totally wrong. Right. Yeah. But, uh, Okay, so what would be some outward behaviors that are manifested in unrighteous anger or wrath? So generally it falls into three categories. There's violent expressions, physical expressions, there's verbal expressions, and there's more subtle expressions that are generally in the emotional camp. So violence would be a little more obvious. You murder someone, mm -hmm. you hit someone, you strike someone, you you beat someone up, we you punch someone out. We often encounter in in a broken world stories of husbands beating their wives or on occasion i actually remember a time earlier on in my pastoral ministry going back almost 20 years when a woman was beating her husband uh, not not necessarily because he was a, a weakling he just wasn't a violent man and she was a violent woman so she would mm -hmm. strike him and beat him and throw things at him we read we read about that we hear about it in the news, and many of us know people who have been physically abusive towards others. And that is out of bounds for the Christian, of course, but it, it does sometimes come into our minds or hearts, and we have to bridle that and harness that, especially as adults. Kids sometimes get into little skirmishes. It's not right, but if you're still beating and hitting and punching people as an adult, well, you need to confess this sin. Mm -hmm. This is definitely a sin in your life. Verbal is probably more common, and that would include screaming at people. There's nothing wrong with a slightly elevated voice. So if you're disciplining a child, Johnny, put that down. The, the forcefulness of your voice, the, the fact that you've raised it a few decibels communicates something to that child. But if you're just screaming the blues at your kids, you're yelling, you're calling them names, you're belittling them. Th these are symptoms of wrath mm -hmm. in your life or threatening people. You know, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to hurt you. Those are symptoms of wrath. And then very, very commonly would be various hateful emotional tactics that people employ. Sulking. Sulking is a behavior that's, that's intended to diminish the other person to make them wonder what you're thinking, to make them pay for whatever injustice you feel that they've done against you without verbalizing it. So sulking is an unfair relational tactic that doesn't help anybody, but it's common. Uh, manipulating people, um, perhaps saying, okay, if you do A, I'm gonna do B, or you know, you're no longer gonna have access to me, or in the case of maybe a divorced couple, you're not gonna have access to our kid unless you do A and B on my behalf. Manipulation. Um, keeping a record of wrongs, you know, in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter talks about love as something that doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we literally somehow delete it from our minds. It may be difficult to do that, but we don't dwell on it. Mm -hmm. We don't mull it over. We don't rehearse it. We don't bring it back, talk it over and over and over again. Nothing wrong with talking through something, but you want to talk it through to a conclusion, mm -hmm. not talk it through and then talk it through and then talk it through, and it becomes a subject that comes up decade after decade for the rest of your life. That's not talking through something. 
when we talk through something positively, we talk it through to a conclusion, and then we put it to bed and we walk away and we don't bring it up again and again and again and again. So those would be manifestations fall into the camp of physical, verbal, and emotional uh, tactics. Even They don't necessarily even have to be expressed toward the other person. You may hate someone's guts and want them dead. They may never even know that. Mm -hmm. So there can be one-on-one manifestations of wrath, or there can be wrath, it's seething wrath directed toward someone that's offended you and you know you you wish them dead or you you hope they get into a car accident or you hope they pay, they pay or you you find some sort of uh what would be the word you find some sort of joy or satisfaction mm-hmm. when you hear about some trial or some problem that they have have gone through we see this i saw this recently in the announcement of Justin Trudeau's divorce and you know that's it's an interesting scenario because here's a man that's tyrannized the population that's that's lied to the population that has uh, pro- promoted various antichrist ideologies threatened pregnancy centers with um, taking away their their charitable status um, ca- called people names uh, who participated in protests or convoys. It's done a lot of very despicable things. And it's it's easy to be angry with a person like that. But when he announced his divorce, which is a sad thing, the end of a marriage is a sad thing. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, like for me, it wasn't a surprise uh, because that's one of the things that often happens in the lives of godless people. It's not a surprise. But we, we should never rejoice in the suffering or downfall of others. But I have a suspicion that maybe some did. It's like, aha, he got what's coming to him. And then, of course, all the memes come out where Sophie doesn't love him for this reason or that reason. I think we have to be careful as Christians to evaluate a person's decisions and be unafraid to call it a person's decisions and behavior, but not necessarily to wish the 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 decline, the death, the downfall of another person. Mm-hmm. We can be angry with the sin and angry with the sinner, but ultimately we should also pray for their salvation. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean we sit quietly in the sidelines and don't say anything. That doesn't mean we don't confront and sometimes boldly. More people should have confronted Adolf Hitler prior to his coming into full power and prior to World War II, and it might have stopped World War II. So there's maybe some failures in hindsight there, and I'm I'm a fan of of calling out tyranny. I think we have a responsibility to do that, but we need to make sure we need to try to keep it objective mm-hmm. as much as possible. Maybe all of us at times are guilty of making it a little too personal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think well, Scripture says, "Vengeance is mine," says the Lord. Right? We're not to uh, worry about the repayment. Uh, let's think about this from a solution standpoint. So let's say we've identified wrath. Somebody's looking and saying, I see some of those outward things. How do we tame wrath in our own lives? What do we do about it? Well, we have to seek the help of the Lord because as human beings, we're, we're obviously born in sin. We believe in the doctrine of total depravity. Justification is a gracious act of God, whereby he declares the unrighteous sinner righteous in his sight. 
And then we have our sanctification, which is a synergistic act whereby the Lord works in us through the reading of his word, through the working of his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ is operative in our lives, but we're also responding and obeying and practicing the spiritual disciplines. And so there's a synergistic nature to our sanctification as opposed to our the monergistic nature of justification. So we are being sanctified. And one of the fundamental means of sanctification is prayer. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, uh, we we ask that the Lord would forgive us as we forgive those that have trespassed against us. Just dwell on that for a moment. We ask the Lord for forgiveness. Every Christian's comfortable with that. Yeah, I don't have a problem asking the Lord for forgiveness, but do you see what the tag is there, the tagline? Mm-hmm. Forgive us, Lord, of our trespasses as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. Now, you might think, also oh, God's forgiveness is conditional. Well, God's salvific forgiveness is not conditional, but in terms of our warm relationship, our fellowship, our journey with the Lord, yeah, there's conditions attached to it, and one of those conditions is don't expect God to forgive you of your ongoing sin if you're unwilling to forgive others. Now, there's a second dimension to this as well, and I want to point people to Matthew 18 to prove this point, in that a lack of ongoing forgiveness. We're not talking about temporary failures that are quickly confessed, but a lack of forgiveness towards others is symptomatic of unbelief. Think about that for a moment. There's a very fascinating parable given to us in Matthew 18, and I want to just kind of take a few moments to flesh this out. And and as we're doing this, perhaps you can think in your own mind of someone who's deeply hurt you. I can think of a name or two or five or ten who have have deeply hurt me, who have done things, uh, who have been absent when they should have been present, who have said things that they shouldn't say about me, who have who've communicated falsehoods that have, they're not strangers. They're people that I have a relationship with and it's hurtful and we need to acknowledge that. And that hurt, from that hurt, we can learn lessons about how to treat others or we can allow the root of bitterness to take up residence in our lives. But one of the things that uproots that root of bitterness is remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ and reminiscing at length about Christ's forgiveness of us. So in Matthew 18, Matthew 18, there is a parable given that is intended to help us to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. And in that parable, there's a king who decides he's going to call in his debts. So he identifies a particular servant that owes him 10,000 talents. Now, when you hear that language, 10,000 talents, we use dollars, obviously, or if you're in England, pounds. We use dollars, but for the most part, you think, well, that, that guy owes him like $10,000. That's a lot of money. No, 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 no. 10,000 talents is not the same as $10,000. 10,000 talents is roughly the equivalent of 200,000 years of salary for one person. It's an astonishing figure. 
So if you live 200,000 years, a, a laborer, and you accumulated 10,000 talents, it's an impossibility for you to owe that to anybody because nobody lives 200,000 years. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the purpose of the, uh, the, the, the parables to help us to understand that this man had a, a literally an irreparable, or uh, uh, not irreparable, but a debt that was unpayable. That's the word I was searching for. A debt that he he literally had no capacity. It was literally impossible for him to pay back that debt. But the king asks for it. I, I want my ten thousand talents back. No one would even lend you that amount of that amount of money. And he be- he begs the king to forgive him, and the king is merciful, and the king forgives him. And that is supposed to draw our mind to the sins we've committed. The sins we've committed are like the ten thousand talents. They're beyond comprehension. They're completely. It's impossible for us to repay those. We can go to church eight times a day. We can give all of our money away. That's impossible for human beings to repay the debt that we owe to a thrice holy God. And that the benevolent king, while he demands payment, forgives it and sets us free by his own benevolence, not by our own righteousness. So as Protestants, and especially as Reformed Protestants, we, we often talk about our appreciation for the doctrine of justification, that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And the word alone is extremely extremely important qualifier there. Then this servant that's forgiven 10,000 talents, 200,000 years of salary, goes and demands repayment from someone that owes him a debt. And guess how much they owe him? One day's pay. And they, they're unable to pay one day's pay, and he beats the tar out of them, and he tosses them in jail because they're unable to pay him back for one day's pay. When he's been forgiven 200,000 years worth of salary, and the king rightly says, you evil servant, I'm going to throw you in prison until you can pay back the debt that you owe me. And the idea there, that's symbolic of hell. Because you can go, he doesn't have enough time left in his life to pay back two hundred thousand years worth of salary. So this, this is an illustration of the gospel. If God forgives us, and to the degree that we literally could not possibly ever pay back that which He's forgiven us of, and then we don't forgive someone who's ticketed us, who's offended us, who's called us a name who posted a nasty meme about us, who struck us on the cheek, shame on us. Mm -hmm. So it's a very convicting parable. And the time has come for us to remind the church, the faithful church that has experienced much trauma over the past three years, that we must forgive our enemies Mm -hmm. from our hearts. This does not mean we do not seek justice This does not mean we don't build boundary fences to try to stop it from happening again. This doesn't mean that we don't call out injustice, but we must forgive uh, those that have trespassed against us, or it calls into question our understanding of the 
infinite forgiveness mm -hmm. that we've experienced from God. You, you mull that one over for a little while, and that'll help you tame wrath and anger in your life. That parable, by the way, ends with this declaration, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So just pay attention to your heart. Do you have a seething bitterness towards those that have offended you, those that have abandoned you? There are many, many names that I could write in a, in a, in a very long list who have offended me, who have hurt me. And in my humanity, it's easy for me to seethe and be bitter and angry with them. But I must, if I'm a true Christian, a son of God, I must forgive them of their trespasses and sins. Again, that doesn't mean you know, tomorrow they get a warm handshake and a pat in the back. Um, it, it means that I must forgive them uh, as Christ has forgiven me and then pray for them that God would save them, but also, again, set up boundaries so that they don't bring damage to others. Perhaps one of the helpful analogies, or maybe not analogies, but exercises that people could participate in is just to ask, are there analogous situations in Scripture that are akin to mine? So if you, if you have bitterness or anger towards someone, think about other people in Scripture who've gone through similar things and just ask, is there anything I could learn from their lessons, be it the you know, parable that I've mentioned here in Matthew 18, or maybe other situations, what Daniel went through in the lion's den, or how um, David exercised grace toward Saul even when he was fleeing from him and had to hide in a cave. Those kinds of analogies sometimes help to put perspective on our own difficulties. Mm -hmm. So uh, we could switch the role then and say, let's say you're trying to minister to somebody who is struggling with the sin of wrath. Obviously, you would point them to some of the things you just pointed them to, but are there other ways that we can assist them to rid wrath from their lives? Well, we need to preach against this sin. And when I say preach against it, I don't necessarily mean big P preaching, the pastor's delivering a 45-minute homily on a Sunday morning kind of preaching, but talking, conversations, teaching, small groups, Sunday school lessons, daily conversations, mentoring relationships, counseling relationships. We have to I preach this truth. We have to say, you know, wrath has no place in the life of a Christian. Mm -hmm. And we need to point people to these examples of Scripture of those that have owed much and been forgiven much. And then, of course, we have to model it in our own lives and testify to the joy that we've experienced and we've chosen to forgive those that have trespassed against us. Part of modeling it, of course, is modeling a, a measure of grace and mercy. Proverbs 15.1, I mentioned that earlier, uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Again, wrath and anger, they're being used yep. as um, synonyms. Yep. Being careful in how we respond, thinking before we speak. Many years ago, I was in a conversation with the then chief of police for our city. We've gone through a couple of chiefs since then, but him and I were just chatting and I mentioned a police officer that I know that's a dear Christian friend of mine. And he's like, oh yeah, I know him. I wish, I wish there were more police officers like him. And then he said this, he says, because he's one of the few that actually thinks before he acts. Hmm. I thought that, that that's quite a, 
good compliment to receive. And it was interesting that the chief mentioned that he's one of the few. I didn't quantify what are we talking about, 10%, 20%, 49%, I don't know. But I guess he'd observed that some of his officers act first and maybe think later. Mm-hmm. And one of the characteristics of a trustworthy person is that you can tell they think before they act. They're not brash. They're not rash. They're not irrational. They're not illogical. There's a thoughtfulness and a poise to them that not only is a blessing to those that are in relationship with them, but also mitigates against having to go say sorry because you said something stupid, because you just acted, verbal diarrhea, vomited on someone verbally, and then, oops, I shouldn't have said that. Now I got to try to unscramble this egg, right? Mm -hmm. So learning the art of being gentle in your answers. And, you know, admittedly, my own life, sometimes I'm on my A game and sometimes I'm not. But when I'm on my A game and I, I say the right thing, I never regret it. When I say something maybe a little too fast or a little too harsh, I always have a check in my spirit and it comes back to bite me. So there's no benefits to being to freaking out on people, uh, yeah. but there is there are many benefits to being gentle. And then asking very practical question. So if we, obviously our first and foremost motivation is to be driven by obedience to God, but God's laws aren't just given to us in some vacuum. They, they make sense. There's, there's, a, there's a practicality to them. Sometimes preachers get all upset if oh, that, that pra- pastor is too practical. All of us should be as practical as we can possibly be because truth is always meant to be practiced. It's always meant to bring about change. So we should always be looking for the practical application. If it's not explicit in the Bible, it should be implicit. What's the practical application of a particular truth? And if if we start with the assumption that God is good and God is holy and God is righteous, and therefore his laws are good, righteous, and holy— then there should be a benefit to them. One can assume that if God says, don't murder, there's a good reason for that. Don't lie, there's a good reason for that. Don't cheat on your wife, don't commit adultery. There's a good reason for that. Why does God forbid unrighteous wrath? Well, there's no benefit to it, like zero. Literally, there's absolutely no redemptive advantage to it at all. It always brings destruction. It doesn't make you feel better. There's no upside to sin. And the same applies to the sin of wrath. There's literally no benefit to it. So think about this, maybe even verbalize this right now if you're by yourself. You have, a, you have anger or a lack of forgiveness towards person X, and, and you know who that person is. You could say this out loud. Aaron, there is literally no benefit to me harboring bitterness or wrath towards person X and it's going to stop today. There's no benefit to it. And that's a truism, because God's laws work. Practically speaking, most people probably have experienced something like this, where they have a a feeling toward another person, and they're not quite sure what it is. And so they talk to a friend or a spouse or a colleague, and as you start to articulate it, you become more aware of what the issue is but you also almost uncover, 
you reveal your anger or your bitterness towards the other, and it actually mushrooms inside of you. And now you're now you're talking about it to lots of people, and you keep talking about it. You're mulling it over in your own mind. When we uh, take thoughts and put them to words, it's like they almost become more concrete in 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 reality. And we this is why gossip is not just spreading false rumors about another person. It doesn't it doesn't help you or bless you. It actually accentuates the offense. It brings it to the forefront of your mm-hmm. mind. It, it allows it to grow and mushroom inside of you. And we use mushroom on the word mushroom as an analogy on purpose because it's like a fungus, right? Mm-hmm. It's it it ultimately funguses exist to 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 eat things up to to be, they're part of the decay process. And when we allow wrath to mushroom in our lives, it eats us up. So sometimes we just need to learn to zip our lips and to stop having the conversations and to say, you know what, I've talked about it enough. So avoiding accusatory language, if the person's right in front of you, avoiding accusatory language, you did this, you did that, maybe having a conversation to try to get to the bottom of the angst or the anger is important not gossiping about them, not slandering them, um, waiting before you speak, actually formulating a thought before you let it through your lips. These are all tactics that help us to suppress and ultimately kill and tame uh, wrath in our lives. Fundamentally, our righteous anger, and we we want our listeners to be characterized by righteous anger. Like I want people to be angry at governments that usurp God's authority over his church. I don't want people to be passive about that. Mm -hmm. We want people to be angry at child abuse, at sex trafficking. We want people to be angry at false teaching. We want people to be angry at murder. Of course, we want people to be angry at those things in a righteous way. We want more table flippers mm-hmm. in the church. They're like, I, I, I want to guard the holiness of God. We need more table flippers. But what we don't need is more people flipping out mm-hmm. and just expressing their own self-righteousness, their own unrestrained anger, seeking vengeance, wanting payback. Uh, wanting people to suffer as they have suffered. These are not godly characteristics. Mm-hmm. These are not God. These are not the characteristics of the Old Testament prophet. These are not the characteristics of our loving, living Messiah. These are not the characteristics of someone that's filled with the fruit of the Spirit. These are not the characteristics of someone that's putting into practice the ethos of love we read about in 1 Corinthians 13. These are characteristics of the carnal Christian. And we need to repent of them. And we need to pray that God would forgive us of these things. And make sure, ask yourself, it, does my anger have a redemptive goal in mind? Legitimately, a legitimate a redemptive goal. Or is it just to embarrass and shame my opponents and make me look better? So the redemptive goal in mind must be connected to either the holiness of God, mm-hmm. the just edicts, of God expressed for us in the word of God, things like the sanctity of life, justice for those that are oppressed, the proverbial widow and orphan. Without these things, that kind of wrath is the kind of sin that must be and has to be repented of because it has no place in the Christian life. Mm 
Would you say that a good indicator of whether it's wrath or righteous anger would be whether it's always personal? To say, so for example, if you're angry because um, of a government tyrannizing, but the anger is only when its government tyrannizes you and not when they tyrannize other people, would that be an indication that actually it's probably more self-motivated than not real righteous anger? I think that's a, a matter of discernment. I think that's a very good question. So for example, if I'm more upset that I was ticketed than 50 other men were ticketed for opening their church, that's a problem. That might be demonstrated in the degree to which I speak of my own in experience with injustice mm-hmm. as opposed to how much I champion justice for others that have experienced injustice. So even in, we have to be careful even in what has happened over the past few years that we don't create attention seekers. Yes. Hey, look at me. I suffered. I suffered more than you suffered. Oh yeah, well, I suffered more than you suffered. Oh yeah, but look how much I suffered. Mm. So we have to be careful about that. Bible talks about let another man speak well of you, not your own lips. So we do, we do on a certain level tell our own story, but we have to always be brutal with ourselves in trying to determine ascertain motives because we don't want the injustices that have been committed against us to become opportunities for self-aggrandizement or for self-promotion. Hey, maybe I'll get a book deal out of this. Right. Yes. You know, maybe I'll get a a promotion. Maybe I'll, I'll get a bigger church out of it, or maybe I'll become the head of some denomination, or maybe I'll make it into a movie or documentary. And, it, and I have been in a documentary, so it's not like in, intrinsically bad, but that should not be our motive. That's right. So we have to be careful not to allow our own suffering to bring, to to be used for our own career advancement. Right. right? And, it, right. And, and maybe I am uh, more concerned about those things than others are, maybe because of my age and because I do tend to be ruthless with the question, why do I think, act, and feel the way I do? I think about that a lot. I just, I think it's important for us to be introspective and to make sure that we're not motivated by some selfishness. And maybe we can never fully remove aspects of selfishness from even the best sermon we preach or the best evangelistic endeavor we engage in, but we have to deal with it as best as we can. So to to, to your question, I think it's a bit of a discernment. I don't think it's necessarily a yes or no, because it could be that an an injustice that was committed was exclusively committed against you. Mm -hmm. And therefore there's no one else that has that kind of angst or wrath because it's a very maybe unique situation to you. Mm-hmm. But most of the injustices we have committed against us have also been or are being committed against a multitude of other people. Now, it's it's not possible to keep up on every news story and to be aware of like every other person that's suffered right. for maybe the cause of Christ or experienced some relational injustice. If you went through a divorce and were deeply hurt by your spouse. It's not like you're the only person in history that's experienced that. If you lost your job because of a lockdown mandate, you're not the only person that experienced that. You're not the only person that was ticketed for opening your church. You're not the only person that's been trash talked on social media or whatnot. So there's there's others out there and we should stand collectively for others, but we have to be careful not to Seek attention. Now, I, I, 
you know, I, how do I know what a person's motives are? I don't. I don't know what another person's motives are. But if I were to see someone who incessantly focuses attention on all of their woes, even in the Christian church, it at least minimally raises a yellow flag in my mind, and I'm probably not going to be the guy that's then telling their story. Mm-hmm. Because it would cause me to question, like, am I actually contributing to some sort of attention-seeking behavior, or am I genuinely standing with a brother or sister that has experienced some catastrophic injustice? Mm-hmm. But as a general principle, yes, Chris, we we should be we should be equally, if not more, concerned with the injustices that have ex- been meted out upon other people than we are upon those that have been meted out upon us. But at the same time, we shouldn't be disconcerned with those that have been meted out to us because they are potentially violations of God's holiness or um, you know, God's commands to live justly and righteously in an unrighteous world. Mm-hmm. One final question I thought of here sure. is, let's say somebody's not by nature even given to anger they're like the the pacifist, really chill right. kind of person. They they're hearing you say we need more table flippers, and they're like, like that's not me. <laughs> what would you say to that person who's like, I struggle to get angry about the things that anger God? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to that person? Yeah, I think I I have a I know of a fellow that once told me he's never been angry, and when he said that, I'm like, really? It's like I've, I've never I've never been angry, and as I observed him. I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> yeah. I think when I was a little boy in particular, I had a bit of a temper. And so it's, I, I remember anger from my earliest days. So to, to say to hear someone say, I've never been angry, I, I can't relate to that. Mm. Um, but let's suppose it's true. Um, I, I would actually challenge that person to ask themselves the question, why? So if you mean that... You, so we all have different sins in our lives, and some sins are more besetting than others. So we have besetting sins, ones that tend to linger, ones that tend to dig their claws deep. And then we have sins that tend to just pop up now and again, that aren't characteristic of us, that we may only commit once in our lives. And of course, all of us will live our lives, and there's some sins we'll just never commit. Like hopefully, hopefully most of my listeners will make it through their lives without literally murdering someone. It's kind of a rare sin to murder someone. It's a it's a it's not quite as rare, but I would hope the majority of people listening won't commit adulterous acts. But to never think a negative thought about someone, to never have bitterness in your heart, that's that's characteristic of most people. So I would say to my brother that says I don't have an issue with anger, okay, well what you're saying is it's not a besetting sin. God bless you. You know, that's that's maybe a gift God has given to you. But do you have righteous anger? Mm-hmm. Because righteous anger is a characteristics of characteristic of God. And as I've obs- and I don't want to judge, okay, but as I've observed that individual over the years, I'm not sure I see a whole lot of righteous anger in them e- either. And it just makes me wonder, hmm, I wonder if they're in a counseling session, if there'd be some things that were discovered about the way they've processed life. Maybe they're suppressing something. Hmm. Maybe they're not identifying 
uh, a pain or a hurt in their life, and it, and the lack of anger becomes almost a coping mechanism. Getting into a little bit of counseling there. Yeah, interesting. But um, all of us should have a certain measure of anger toward sin. The crazy thing is that spirit rot. The crazy thing is, and this is a, I'm speaking in generalities here. Okay, mm-hmm. it seems to me that more Christians struggle with unrighteous anger than they do with expressing righteous anger. And that, the proof's in the pudding. So when we see what's taking place in the world around us, every single day, mothers go into hospitals, babies are chopped up and sucked out of their uteruses. Does that not anger you? Every day, kids across our country are walking into medical establishments and having hormones injected into their bodies to change their quote-unquote gender, having their genitals cut off or mutilated. Does that not anger you? Does it not anger you that people have literally lost their jobs because they wouldn't take an injection? Where in the Word of God does it say we have to take every new injection that comes out? Mm -hmm. People have literally lost their jobs, their careers, things they went to university for, studied for, spent years in. People have had to retire early and, and, and take reduced pensions because their employers have forced on them the, the woke antichrist ideologies of our age. Does that not anger you? If you're not angered by those things, something's not right. Something's not right. So it could be true that some don't have unrighteous anger, wrath is a besetting sin, but they should have righteous anger. Our Lord and Savior had that. Yes. And so yeah. we should have that as a characteristic of our outlook on life and our response to the injustices of the world as well. Excellent. Yeah, it's good. Well, thank you, Aaron. Appreciate it. The Seven Deadly Sins is a come to a close. So we have covered all seven. Hopefully you've enjoyed them and, uh, well, not enjoyed the sins, but enjoyed the the talk of them <laughs> and hopefully uh, you don't go out now embrace them all exactly for sure and uh hopefully you can put into practice some of the lessons learned and as always do us a favor and share these podcasts out so that more can hear them and uh, they can be a blessing you can hear them both on the uh, pursuit of glory.org website as well as the fight laugh feast network website and their companion app uh, and we hope you'll tune again in next week to another episode of leadership now with dr aaron rock